Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today we're going to talk about The Informant, a movie about Mark Whitaker, an executive at Archer Daniels Midland, who was an informant for the FBI in one of the largest price-fixing schemes the FBI has ever prosecuted. But there is so much more to it than the description can provide. The movie is directed by Steven Soderbergh and stars Matt Damon, Scott Bakula, and Joel McHale. My guest for today's episode is my frequent collaborator, John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don will also join us to discuss the movie. The Informant gets a 6.4 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, a 79% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 66% rating from Metacritic. How is The Informant as a movie, and how is it as a medium to document the history of what happened in the serious but strange story of corporate greed? We will rate the movie as entertainment and as fact and give a grade at the end of the episode. If you're ready, let's get started. If not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. Favorite Soderbergh film? Uh, excuse me, Mr. Soderbergh. Is this a good scene for me to take my shirt off? <laughs> and that is John's impersonation of Matt Damon impersonating Matthew, Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey. He only ever did that on Letterman, didn't he? I have no idea, but it's my favorite thing he's ever said. I've seen him do it a couple times on Letterman, and one of the times was because Letterman asked him to do it. <laughs> <laughs> they were rounding out the interview, and I swear, I got to try to find footage on this, but Letterman asked him to repeat it again. But I haven't seen him do it anywhere else, but yeah, Matt Damon impersonating Matthew McConaughey. It's awesome. I, I have no idea what films Soderbergh has and hasn't done, so the list that we should go through will be uh, educational and edifying. He's done everything. I'll tell you what, let's just go ahead and jump to that that's going to be part of our discussion sex lies and videotape was yeah. his first movie that he did and it just it was at that time when indie films were coming in when weinstein was coming in and then indie films took off and a large part of that was due to sex lies and videotape out of sight with jennifer lopez love and that george movie. Clooney. oh great movie Great movie. Aaron Brockovich, hmm. nominated for Best Picture in 2001. That was a solid movie. Traffic. Ooh, that was traffic. so good. Nominated for Best Picture as well in 2001. Wow. Which makes uh, Soderbergh the first director since Michael Curtis in 1938 to be nominated for two Best Pictures as director in the same year. Impressive. And Michael Curtis directed Angels with Dirty Faces and Four Daughters. Ocean's Eleven, which is a classic, and Carl Reiner, who just passed. I, I love him in that movie. Oh, everyone in that movie is awesome. Everyone shines. It's incredible. 
Insomnia with Al Pacino, Robin Williams, and Hilary Swank. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, but that sounds like a good cast. He did a, a television show with George Clooney called K Street. It was a 10-part political series. Ocean's 12, which wasn't a great sequel, although IndieWire has a good quote about it. They said it's a great sequel about how hard it is to make a great sequel. Ah. <laughs> well, I, I didn't. I didn't see twelve. What's the premise of twelve? I don't even remember. I didn't know. I, I, I mean, wiped, they're robbing. Something I, I wiped out. that. Yeah, yeah, I just wiped it out. And Ocean's Thirteen. Did you see that at all? I did not even bother. I heard about one part of Ocean's Thirteen in a review where they were complaining that I got. They just got too cute about the whole thing. And that's where Julia Roberts' character is found to have a likeness to Julia Roberts. No. And they have... Not okay. Bubble, which is really interesting. Bubble was kind of a a crime noir film he did using non-professional actors. And what was really interesting was how it was released. Because now that we're in COVID times, we're having this discussion about theaters and video on demand and used to be the standard was six months you know it's mm-hmm. in the theater then six months later it can come out on home video and, and straight to video was a and, no, and straight, no. straight to video was just bad however in 2005 what Soderbergh also did with bubble is it was released in theaters and on the web on the same day which 15 years later, we're seeing that right now take place. It was released on DVD four days later. As you can imagine, the theater association owners were not very happy about this. And their chief executive, John Fathian, called the film release the biggest threat to the viability of the cinema industry today. Ooh, billionaires getting mad at millionaires. God damn it, the democratization. A film. How dare everyone be able to have access to these films? Yes. And Soderbergh's response to that was, I don't think it's going to destroy the movie-going experience any more than the ability to get takeout has destroyed the restaurant business. Fabulous. (laughs) Which I think also applies to COVID times, because what are we seeing? A lot of takeout, which is keeping restaurants afloat. He did a four-hour biopic on Che Guevara. I would love to see that. In two parts. God, me too. Okay. Well, maybe we'll put it on the list. The movie we're going to talk about today, The Informant. He also did Haywire, where he took another non-professional actor, Gina Carano. That was such a good movie. Contagion was another Steven Soderbergh film. You're you're given a look. That doesn't translate well on podcasts. Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm just, I'm surprised. I'm my my impression of Soderbergh is not it's not this list of films. <laughs> no, because we're naming a lot of movies which people know, but they don't know Soderbergh directed them. Yeah, here's one: The Hunger Games. Fuck, really? Which one in the series? It's the first one, and no, he did not direct the movie. The movie was directed by Gary Ross, but Steven Soderbergh took a gig as the second unit director. On the Hunger Games, and he filmed much of the District 11 riot scene. So here you are. You already have these movies to your credit. Traffic, Ocean's Eleven, Che, Aaron Brockovich, and you take a second unit director gig? Why? 
Humility. That that would be good. Magic Mike. I liked that movie. Magic Mike was good. It's a great movie. Channing Tatum as well. Yeah. Behind the Candelabra with uh, Matt Damon and uh, Michael Douglas. Yeah. And you and I were talking a little bit about how some of these directors kind of get their own acting troops, which grow. Yeah. Michael Douglas was in Traffic. Damon ah, was yeah. in the Ocean series and the Informant. And, you know, when, when people want to come back and work with you all the time, that says something. Absolutely. And I, I want to make a note that Magic Mike, the reason I liked it so much, because there is the implied desire just to watch men get naked. I really found it to be this generation's Saturday Night Fever, mm-hmm. this pain of deciding between your past and your future and how you're going to take that path. And I thought it was it was brilliant. It was brilliantly mm-hmm. directed. It was brilliantly written. It was funny and poignant and stupid, just like life is. Yeah. I, I just... I. I thought it was excellent. And, and, you know, on that, I think that's one. Those are elements that Soderbergh tends to nail in his movies a lot. People tend to be very human. Even the secondary characters, even just background characters. Uh, like in The Informant, there, there's these things that catch me in Soderbergh films. It's early on, and uh, Matt Damon's secretary comes in, and she pulls a Kleenex from out of her bra. <laughs> While she's talking to him. (laughs) But there's these little human natural touches that are just done so naturally in Soderbergh films. And not by the main actors. Usually by secondary actors and people you wouldn't even recognize. And it just, it adds so much because his style as well is very natural and stylized at the same time. And it's an odd combination that strikes me. Yeah, it doesn't seem like... Um, just from the movies I've seen and from that list, it doesn't seem like his style is, it does seem natural. It doesn't seem very affectatious, you no. know, like I feel like a, as much as I love a Wes Anderson film, it, there's a lot of affectation in there. I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of projecting yeah. of, of, of a certain style of Wes Anderson. Style. Yeah. 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 Of, of Wes Anderson that needs to be shown and it doesn't feel that way with Soderbergh. It feels like a, some dude making a movie exactly and i mean these movies on their own on the surface have little in common and you've been surprised about the fact that soderbergh has directed some of them yeah which the question is then what is soderbergh's style does he have a particular style i don't think i've seen enough to classify it but i would i think what don said poignant and stupid those that combination sad hits you in all the right places but there's a lightness and kind of frivolity about it. Like yeah. it's just, it, it, in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's like with, with the informant. I mean, the, the music alone is so yeah. jaunty. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's hard to, it's hard not to laugh throughout, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. In 2013, after all those movies, Soderbergh retired. And then he directed a 10 part miniseries called The Knack on Showtime. And he did that for two seasons in his retirement. And that was interesting. I, I didn't really catch what the knack was about. But when he left, he said his plan was that other directors could come in, continue the same story in whatever style they want. Huh. That, that sounds like an interesting experiment. Logan Lucky with 
Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. And, that was good. And Adam Driver. Did you see Logan no. Lucky? Oh, Logan Lucky was great. Daniel Craig playing the Southern guy is really good. I imagine. <laughs> really good. <laughs> uh, he secretly shot a horror film using iPhone 7s called Unsane. He recut the movie Heaven's Gate and released it on his website. He also took Raiders of the Lost Ark, turned it into a black and white film, took all the dialogue and soundtrack out, and replaced it with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score from The Social Network as an exercise in staging filmmaking. Now, staging, what that means real quick, staging usually refers to set dressing or blocking a scene. But what Soderbergh writes on his website is that staging refers to how the various elements of a given scene or piece are aligned, arranged, and coordinated to expose Spielberg's mastery of the technique. According to him, few people do it well. And he produced a black and white version of the film in order to bring out those elements in the visuals that you might not have noticed otherwise. Now, Don, you've had a chance to see this. I did. What did you think? Well, I'm not really a person who would consider myself a student of film, so I'm not really sure what he's looking for in terms of interpretation. I do think that the soundtrack he used made me pay attention more to what was happening on the screen, but other times it just pulled me out because it was just so dissonant. Mm Mm-hmm. That, that it was distracting. And John, you got to see a little bit of this. What did you think? It was bizarre. I thought that the music seemed uh, anachronistic to the filming style. Mm-hmm. So it was really jarring to watch. It, it felt like something was just overlaid on top of a of an existing movie. Yeah. It had no... I didn't feel that the music met the moments or anything, but that's, again, it's not what we're looking for, right? Well, it seemed like you pulled out of it that Harrison Ford, A, was young. Oh, yeah. And B, looked like three different actors throughout the film. Well, yeah, Val Kilmer. (laughs) Who else did we get in there? Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart, a very young Very young Humphrey Bogart, yeah. Noir Bogart, and did I say Tom Cruise too? No, I don't think so. No, no, not Tom Cruise. Did you get that because everything else was removed? Yes. Or had if you... there had been dialogue and it were woven in, I think I would have had a, had a very different experience. Yeah. But it just felt like someone got his or her favorite soundtrack and overlaid it onto mm-hmm. Raiders. Yeah. It just felt amateurish. Yeah. It just I did, it wasn't enjoyable to watch. No, no. I can see it for study purposes, and I have I have, I have no idea about blocking and all that kind of stuff. I can I can understand that, but to sit and watch that would be an exercise in like torture, I think. But no, and his purpose on his website, he says, is for educational purposes, purely to have those elements called out to you. So no, very interesting. But I am a huge, huge fan of Soderbergh. I really just love what he I can does. Tell. Let's go ahead and get started where we usually do, and that is with an overview of the movie. We're talking about The Informant, and Mark Whitaker, played by Matt Damon, is rising in the management ranks at Archer Daniels Midland, ADM, in the early 1990s. And at the urging of his wife, Ginger, he blows the whistle on the company's price-fixing scheme. Whitaker shares the information with FBI Special Agent Brian Shepard, played brilliantly by Scott Bakula. Absolutely. Oh, I, I love Scott Bakula in most things. I especially like him in this film. I like his uncertainty in this film. I like his his yeah. his his suspicion. 
Is it, it, he, he doesn't look like the most confident FBI agent that has walked the earth. It's interesting you say that because, and this isn't something we're going to cover in the facts, so we'll divert very briefly here. One of the things Agent Herndon says about Shepard is he is the most people guy you could ever meet. Whereas Herndon's more of what you picture an FBI agent to be. Yeah. So Herndon would come into the office and Shepard would want to talk for an hour about what he did over the weekend. <laughs> and Herndon was just, let's get down to business. Let's, let's do this. Let's do it. But it's interesting to say that because I find many times, and there's going to be a few things I mentioned today, where when I research these things, they may not be evident and called out in the film. But when you know about them, they're an element that comes into play. So now knowing that Agent Shepard is a people person, you can see that in how Scott Bakula is bringing him across. Uh. Absolutely. Whitaker tells Shepard about the price-fixing scheme at ADM that they are routinely meeting with their competitors to fix the price of lysine, an additive used in the commercial livestock industry. The FBI puts Whitaker to work as an informant as he gathers evidence by taping the company's activity in business meetings. His efforts yield enough evidence for an FBI raid of ADM. And you were talking about the music before. I love that shot of the, the cars coming into the parking lot yeah. in a very official way yeah. with what sounds like the dating game music playing <laughs> in the background. <laughs> it's like, it, this shouldn't be. It all seems so fun. <laughs> Do you think that is Whitaker's perspective? That it's fun? Yeah, his point of view, given what he says after the raid. The way that, at least with his inner monologue, he's presented, I still have to say there's something I feel incredibly naive and almost innocent about the guy while simultaneously enjoying this ride and the corruption that follows and the lies that he spins mm -hmm. and in la that scene at, at the end where he he's smiling and he's ah oh, yeah this is there's he's a, he's a complex character um but yeah that does make that does make sense that he would see it as a game and yeah. games are meant to be played and have they don't have consequences it's a game yeah because when they do the initial bust at the restaurant, he's sitting in Agent Shepard's car. And he's saying, oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall to hear that. Uh, didn't I seem scared? Did I seem really scared? I felt scared. So to him, this is this is enjoyable to a certain level, especially since it's found out he's been telling everyone that he's working with the FBI. Is it also enjoyable from a vengeance standpoint from for him as well it's a sadistic kind of thing where he's enjoying seeing his superiors being taken down because he has these aspirations to climb the ladder and become president i i didn't get that out of the performance i think he saw it as an opportunity but i don't think he saw it as something he could engineer not that he could engineer it but just the fun that he's having is it part of the satisfaction that comes from seeing these two morons that he believes are running the company and that are corrupt and he believes he's doing the right thing or convinces himself he's, he's doing the right thing. I just wondered in a couple of scenes if that was part of the fun for him is seeing his superiors taken down. You know, I really don't think that's coming into play in his mind because what we're really watching is his undiagnosed and untreated bipolar disorder. 
when this is taking place, because that's part of what makes him think he's going to be the CEO of the company when all is said and done. I think I fall somewhere in the middle of all of that. I think he sees himself as the good guy, and you see that play out right through to the end, and it continues to grow. It's that megalomania that you were talking about, because at the end when he's talking, and I can't remember to who, he's saying, well, we worked on this case for three years. You know, he takes Mm -hmm. ownership of this case that is not his to claim ownership. Yeah, that's when he's talking to his new lawyers. Oh, yes, his new new lawyers. Played by Tony Hale. (laughs) Yes, another comedian. (laughs) The exasperation (laughs) from his new lawyers is, again, part of, I mean, just laughing out loud. The looks on their faces. <laughs> is it seven? Mm-hmm. You said it was seven million. No, that's nine night. That's with interest or whatever. <laughs> yeah, did he just? I don't think it has the spikes to it that the feeling of revenge does. But I think it's that idea of I'm doing this for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. So they're the bad guys, and yes, they should go down. And because I've done this. I deserve to be the CEO. And when he sees that that is maybe not going to happen, he starts embezzling money because he's explaining, well, this is all going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I have to make a plan as though this simply clarifies and excuses that he is embezzled somewhere between seven and eleven million dollars. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's with interest. He does not have insight into why this might be wrong. I I think he's genuine in that position. I don't think he's saying that to shine people on. Mm -hmm. I think he tells a lot of lies, at least how it's presented in the film. He's doing this because he has to do something. They've asked him to be an informant. And in return, he needs to be able to skim some money off the top to survive when all this is done. Yeah. Now, while working with Whitaker, the FBI agents grow to like him a little too well and try to receive assurances from their superiors that the agency will stand behind Mark. Following the raid, as the pressure mounts on him, Mark becomes distrustful of the FBI and attorneys and destabilizes his relationships with him. Meanwhile, back at ADM, a paper trail of forgeries has been discovered that shows that Mark has been embezzling money from the company. He begins to spiral out of control and claims that Agent Shepard assaulted him with a briefcase. Ah! The deepest cut. The deepest cut. And he hit me with a briefcase. And he's so indignant about it. I know. And it's not true. No. no. Even if it were true, who fucking cares? Well, Mark did. I know. He hit me with the... Why? Why would it matter in this? I mean, in this grand scheme of plotting and duplicity, and the FBI is involved, and your complaint is that you got hit with a briefcase. <laughs> I was assaulted by a small piece of luggage. Whitaker is offered a plea deal of three years in prison. He decides to go to trial, which, by the way, it took him three years to be in trial. And then he was given a sentence of 10 years for his crimes. Did so, they count any of that as time served? I No, because no, he wasn't in jail. 
Oh, he wasn't in jail while he was no. awaiting trial. No, he wasn't. Two executives at EDM served three years for taking part in the price-fixing scheme. Let's talk about thoughts on the film. We have a little bit here, but first off, we love Soderbergh, love the work he does. And let's go ahead and um, you had mentioned, we talked a little bit about the music, mm-hmm. which I have a theory about the music, but I also want to talk about where the humor comes from, mm-hmm. because music is definitely one of those things but I think Hitchcock is doing something here that's very Hitchcockian in Soderberg. a way. Oh, I, who do I say? Hitchcock. Hitchcock. I said Hitchcock is doing something Hitchcockian, which Hitchcock was known to do. Uh, but in this instance, <laughs> <Touché>. <laughs> but in this instance, thank you. It is Soderbergh who's doing something Hitchcockian. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and talk about uh, where the story comes from, because I want to lay down that there's a serious aspect to this and the people who have brought this story forward have some serious chops in this. This comes from a book written by Kurt Eichenwald and Kurt Eichenwald worked at the New York times from 1985 to 2006. He covered the wall street beat and corporate takeovers in 1995. He began writing about corporate misdeeds in 2000. His book, the informant was released It is a nonfiction police procedural through and through, but he began to receive feedback where people told him that as they were reading it, they would find themselves laughing out loud, which doesn't seem to be something you would do in a crime police procedural. Yeah. I think some of that is because of the sheer absurdity of it. People aren't laughing at it because it's, funny funny Mm -hmm. it's not straight comedy but we all do that sometimes you're at a funeral you're dealing with surgery i'm clumsy i run into stuff people laugh it's not because it's funny that i have hurt myself running into something but it's absurd Mm -hmm. and i think there's something about that and especially because soderbergh makes this person very human he he crafts his characters to and his stories to be poignant and stupid and funny and trivial and big just like life is mm-hmm. so they're very human so you can empathize with this person who has a tenuous grasp on reality at best that he continues to loosen as the story goes on because it's easy to hate someone who embezzled. It's easy to hate. It's it's easy to make white collar criminals just the bad guys. It's easy to make them into Gordon geckos. Mm-hmm. But to have you feel sympathy and empathy for them, I think is a particular skill of Soderbergh's. And I think he does that very well with Mark Whitaker. And I think he uses his internal mo- monologues mm-hmm. and the music say very well to do this and and you know i think it's interesting you mentioned empathy because i think that's where soderbergh ends up getting the audience to but before we get there he has us laughing at the same things and i think what he's doing is the humor from the movie is not coming from a standard setup punchline like a comedy Mm -hmm. and it's not coming from a played straight for laughs like an airplane or a naked gun. Neither of those things are taking place, which means the comedy is coming from a few different places. It's coming from his lies and admissions, which he tells to his attorneys and to the FBI agents. 
And what Soderbergh, I think, is doing is putting us, the viewer, in the shoes of those characters. So did you find yourself rooting for him? No. Never? No. Not at one point? Not anyway. The first time I saw this movie, I think every line admission, I was just fascinated. Because I'm like, how is this guy still going? Every next one is like what the hell was that? And it was just a fascination to see what's the next one going to be. <laughs> see, to me, that's a little bit of rooting, but I wasn't rooting for him to get away with it. I was, Oh uh, yeah. Okay. No, I, I was I get just, what you're saying. Yeah. I was just fascinated by his ability to lie, have the admission and lie again, but it wasn't being done in a vengeful way. And it wasn't being done to necessarily get a benefit out of it in the moment, like a lot of people would lie to absolve themselves. Because remember, the only reason the FBI found out about the price fixing, the only reason why that was brought to them is because Whitaker was trying to cover up a lie about the sabotage of the lysing. Right. If he had not lied about that, the price fixing would never have come to the FBI's attention and we wouldn't be talking about this at all. I guess what I meant by rooting was I found myself throughout the film wanting this plot to expand to the absurdest logical conclusion, if that makes sense in a contradictory way. <laughs> I, I really wanted to see. The, and, and part of it, I think, was with the inner monologue the details that he would notice sometimes mm -hmm. some of his his asides where i i'm i'm trying to i'm grasping for specifics but he would go on something on a on a on a, a talk that was serious about some aspect of the case or some dimension of what he was doing and then he would make these observations like oh i hope janet gets pancakes this time or you know like some kind uh -huh. of really weird yeah. hu but very human thing too so i there's there's uh, he's a fascinating character even though again he's duplicitous he's mm -hmm. mendacious he's just an absolute you know head-to-toe liar i found myself wanting him to win you know <laughs> and what would winning be winning would be outwitting everyone and getting uh, away with it uh yeah that, that wasn't yeah, that, yeah okay. he does not have that in him to do that. no i know but i, I found myself going yeah go for it <laughs> <laughs> now, you see, you mentioned his monologues. That's another area where the humor comes from. But that's his bipolar disorder. And what I think is really interesting about that is that's providing humor. But at the same time, what we have taking place is a rolling wave throughout the film where they get much more serious. They become much more paranoid. It starts out with a woman's sweater and I think my favorite one is an avocado. Who would want that texture in their mouth? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's my, that's, that's my favorite one. <laughs> but but there are these benign thoughts which on the surface aren't bipolar. But then there's a little extra thing in the next one and the next one and the next one. And this, it's this rolling wave which is providing humor to us as the viewer until that scene with the letter in the living room. When he's called out by Agent Shepard and told, Mark, it's fake. And the point where all of that turns is on Ginger's face. Mm. Because she's in the background behind Mark. And she gets this look on her face where she realizes what this is. And she says, 
just stop, Mark. Just, yeah. just stop. And at that point, as a viewer, it's not funny anymore. But we have been laughing at it for the entire film. And I think that is such an interesting place to put an audience in, is to provide this thing, which you don't know it's bipolar mm-hmm. at the time. You don't know what you're laughing at is untreated, undiagnosed bipolar. Because throughout the movie, it's kind of like, gee, I wonder kind of tone. Mm-hmm. And then when we're talking, I think that was a firework. Did you hear the firework? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. even going off the yeah, whole time. Through the microphone. Uh, and then in that scene with the letter, the thoughts aren't talking over anyone else. They are on their own and talking to him. And they're taking on a much more serious tone in that scene than they had been in the rest of the movie. And so I think as a director, Soderbergh is providing this humor to us and saying, you don't know what you've been laughing at this whole time, but it's mental illness, by the way. Yeah, but do you think that that is either amplified or or compounded by, I mean, if you take manic depression or bipolar disorder, that is not something that most audiences would have any kind of intimate understanding of also the notion of white collar crime Mm -hmm. is something i mean these are when you say bipolar i mean unless you have experience with that that's an abstraction to someone yeah and as is price fixing i mean what if i if i sit around and go okay so how is con agra like fixing prices right how the steps i have to take to get to how that actually affects me and and true so I think that that is that that in part informs the comedy as well because you're right you don't know what you're laughing at yeah and there's maybe that's a hallmark of Soderbergh that he can take that seemingly innocuous dialogue or scene and then turn it into something very weighty the first time I definitely didn't catch it because the first time I saw the movie I came out of it thinking well I didn't hate it but it didn't really catch me either and then i think i've seen it an additional three times in preparing for this discussion and that's when these other elements have really come out and made themselves noticeable yeah it did not have a strong impact on i I barely remembered it from when i first watched it um this last rewatch was incredible it's i mean it's it's an incredible film it really is direction characters the character development is so incredible he is so finely described i mean down to his 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 tastes in cutlery and things like that you know it's like what what it's Uh it's uh, but i i just it's brilliant in that in that regard Uh. the other piece because i don't want to get away too much from when he was trying to build possibly empathy but also you know building the background of this person to show you know these patterns actually existed a very long time you know, the first time he really lied in a big way that we we're made aware of, he's really rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. He heard that orphans get more sympathy. Yep. So mm. he told everyone in college, yeah. he's an orphan. And then he just kept rolling with that story. But then he takes it to the next level and he and his wife adopt two children to show what good you know the way he frames it is to show what good people they are not because he's 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 not saying i think this is an important thing to do he's saying 
this is empathy garnering. I'm mm. going to do this. So there's this really strong drive for manipulation for the purposes of getting people to like him. He seems mm. to really need to be liked and respected and be the big man in the room. Just like when he starts to take ownership of the case, when he's telling someone toward the end of the movie, well, we worked on this for three years or whatever it was. It wasn't his case. He didn't work on it. He was an informant. And then justifying skimming the money because that was his retirement package because he was going to have no other options. And it just made sense in his head. You know, this this manipulation and this justification and how it's laid out, it can come off as very cynical. Mm-hmm. It works perfect, but it's perfectly suited for the corporate world. I mean, that is, this Isn't is a, it? Uh, to me, one of the things watching the film was, aside from the characters, the culture of CEO, executive, corporate America mm-hmm. was on full display here in terms of how people see the world and see each other. And that whole notion of being liked and being the big man in the room but also, I think, you know, you go, then you can flip to the other side and you can say, okay, so it's an abstraction for myself or any of us to imagine the ramifications of a corporate crime. And then from the flip side, I imagine that once you're in that position, I can't imagine seeing people as people anymore. You become so disconnected and you're, you're dealing with millions and millions of consumers that you just see them as numbers and charts that go up and down so I, I he seems emblematic of corporate culture at least in the time period that we're working with or or, or looking at yeah remember he's a science guy though i know but he, he's, he's biotech absolutely but he's working for a corporation why do scientists go to corporations yeah it, to make it, money move up the ladder be absolutely. powerful you could do research at a university you could do all That's kinds true. of endeavors with your science degree but he has a phd and he decided to go to the corporate world. You don't do that unless you want to make money. And what the character says in the movie is, in order to move up an ADM, I have to be on the business side. And he gets to the business side, and that's when he discovers what's going on with the price fixing. Uh, that's what he tells the agents in the movie. And that's the whole thing, is that notion of moving up, right? That I mean, the guy has a PhD in, what, what is it? He's a biochemist or something a biochemist. Like yeah. He feels the need to move up a corporate ladder. I mean, that that's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. It seems to be reflective of the corporate culture in the 90s. Yeah, I just, yeah. it just smacks of it. Smacks of, of it smacks of fast food nation. That's what that's that, that's the book yes. that immediately came to mind when I was watching the film. It was like this is just in another <laughs> in another context. It is this it, it is the same story of lies and deceit and manipulation and people who are only in it for themselves, and that's all they give a shit about. Well, ninety one, ninety two was in the wake of greed is good. True. Uh, I mean, late eighties, yeah. Corporate culture, yeah. of course, bleeds into early. Thank 1990s. you, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. All right. Greed oh, NHW. Is good. Uh, was that Sling Blade? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, score for the film out of four stars, Don. What do you give it? Oh, I give it a four. It's just, I just, I really enjoy that film. I just really, really enjoy the film. 
it's like you can't really say why either no, to someone. You can't, I, you... I can't put my finger on a single reason, but I think it goes back to our thesis, which is that Soderbergh creates these very human characters and storylines mm-hmm. that have the complexities of life, even in the secondary characters and background characters. And it it draws you in and you want to be there for the whole ride. And, and, you know, I love movies where you can't give an elevator speech to explain why you like it. Yeah. Well, I think that's what makes it great. I think once you can pin down and define, then you start to get into analytical territory that goes beyond taste. You know, I mean, like, why do I like something? I mean, like, why why do I like chocolate ice cream? I mean, it's good. Yeah. That's why. (laughs) I mean, we could explain it chemically. We could. But why do I like it personally? I don't know. Just it's good. It's good. Four out of four. Four out of four. four. All the way. Great film. Four out of four for me as well. Just incredible, incredible film. Now, in this portion of the podcast, we're going to talk about how facts were presented in the film and the historical and factual accuracy of each item. We will give the movie a letter grade for accuracy of the historical elements at the end of the episode. So let's go ahead and get started. Now, usually when we talk about the film in this portion of the podcast... I usually pull three to five instances and we talk about what happened in the movie and what happened in real life. I don't think we need to do that with the informant. And the reason Uh, why is, would would you not do that? Said you wanted conversation. Yeah, but you want cause. (laughs) And the reason why is all of the people who would vouch for the accuracy of this film have done so. The writer of the book, Eichenwald, says there's nothing in the movie that isn't in the book. Mark Whitaker says the movie is accurate with his downfall and in showing what treat untreated and undiagnosed bipolar order looks like. He also says, I didn't see any cheap shots. And lastly, Agent Herndon, who was portrayed by Joel McHale in the film, said that every event you see in the movie really happened. So regarding fact-checking, those primary people who are in the movie say what you see there is what happened in real life. Including the person we're not supposed to trust? Whitaker? Yeah. He is an interesting character in real life. I'm going to have a video on our website at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash the informant where it's a half-hour interview with him. He's very honest about what happens. He even says when he's referred to as a whistleblower... He's not a whistleblower. He says his wife is a whistleblower. And he says the distinction is a whistleblower is someone who is knowingly willing to give up everything in order to bring the truth out. And he said, I wasn't willing to do that. I was forced to do that by my wife. So he has done some deep introspection and been through extensive treatment and is capable of speaking to the accuracy of this film, even though in the film he is not a source to be trusted he owns everything he he gives talks on the film and he owns everything he did it seems like a paradox it seems contradictory well we'll take we'll take a little closer look at it so what i'd like to do is i'd like to give a greater understanding about some of the elements that are in the movie because as i mentioned earlier sometimes when doing research for these films There are elements of truth that aren't called out directly, but influence an actor's performance or might influence how a scene is played. 
And I think having an understanding of that background will flesh things out mm -hmm. a little greater. So one thing is regarding the price fixing. You had mentioned that and that they don't go deep into what the price fixing is. They really do just give you enough that you need to know as the viewer in order to understand the story and follow along. But I think we need to take a look at what the price fixing at ADM was. Because the movie shows that Whitaker lied about a mole in Archer Daniels Midland, and the executives called in the FBI to help. After Whitaker begins to cooperate with the FBI about the mole, he confesses that there is no mole and gives the FBI information about the illegal price-fixing scheme that ADM is part of. So what really happened? Exactly as the movie shows, the only thing that we are left to figure out is why Mark confessed to the FBI and told them about the price fixing. Was it due to his conscience? Was it to divert attention from his lie? Or was it because his wife Ginger told him to do it? Now, from something that Mark shared on a, on a podcast called Truth at Work, one thing the movie doesn't show is just how religious the Whitakers were. And Mark shared this exchange from Ginger when she convinced him to turn himself in. She said, Ginger, well, God told me that the fact you're seven months involved in something that's been going on for well over a decade, 12, 13 years, that the best thing you can do is turn yourself into the federal authorities. God told her. Always a good thing when God is talking to someone. God, Always a good sign. Always a, God told her. Yeah. Mark said he told Ginger, if I turn myself into the federal authorities, I could go to prison for price fixing. It's illegal. The CEO is good friends with President Clinton. He's been good friends with the last three or four presidents. He's a powerful man. He's a billionaire. The, this company will come after us with everything they have, and I'd be more scared of them than of the government. Ginger replied, my CEO is bigger than your CEO. Mark said, well, who's your CEO? And Ginger said, my CEO's God. And Mark said, God don't know anything about price fixing and all these things. He's not involved with that. You're not going to find any of that in the Bible. And Ginger said, oh, there's a lot in the Bible about theft and the Ten Commandments and doing the right thing. Don't think there's not a lot about this in the Bible. You're wrong there. God's my CEO, and we're going to turn you in today. And if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. Now, at the time, Ginger only knew about the price fixing. She did not know about the embezzlement of $9 million that Mark had been a part of for a couple months before he met the FBI. In an interview with Jeff Weeks, which is on our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, the informant, the executives who were embezzling money from ADM knew they were safe. ADM was not going to prosecute an executive over a few hundred thousand dollars when that executive had knowledge of the price-fixing scheme. Whitaker said that there was one executive who was caught who got to keep his company car, got to keep his stock options, and just quietly left the company. If you were an executive at ADM, and you were embezzling money, you were pretty much safe because you had knowledge of ADM's price fixing. So then when he was talking about embezzling for the sake of taking care of himself, then that was just another lie. 
if he had started embezzling a couple months before he ever reported it. That was a second embezzlement. Oh, a second the embezzlement. The first embezzlement, he was doing it with other executives. The second embezzlement, he was doing solo. This is like a financial circle jerk. Did, I'm wondering if, um, did his wife have anything to say about the the miscommunication from God? <laughs> I have that found God failed to mention that her husband was, you know, a fucking criminal. <laughs> you, you know, I'd be upset at my CEO if he didn't mention it. Yeah. Uh, well, not, that's a pretty lazy work. Yeah, well, I, ha- maybe, I haven't I mean, found anything from Ginger on that. Maybe this is a modern day version of Old Testament's sort of retribution. Mm-hmm. God's not going to take care of wiping out, you know, entire worlds or communities. He's just going to bat about one guy. Yeah, and it's there, there's a strange, if we're talking about 80s and 90s corporate culture, the merging of religion and money in mm-hmm. terms of mm-hmm. um, yeah. that. that's, I don't know. I, I, I can't listen to that explanation with any sense of empathy. <laughs> it's like, no. That's what happened. Jesus Christ. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> I didn't say Yahweh. You're not supposed to say it, you know. <laughs> Well, one of my favorite parts in the movie is when Mark starts wearing a wire. <clears throat> and in the movie, they show that he would narrate where he was walking. I'm breaching the front yes. door. And he would give the he's, first... He's breaching the front door. Breaching the front door. <laughs> and he would give the first and last names and the position of everyone who he came across. The movie also shows that he had problems with the tape recorder in his briefcase. And no one at the table noticed as he was... <laughs> Fussing around with it while he was taping them. Are they that confident? Who they? Oh, all the people around him that they just—it would never occur to them that they could be recorded. I mean, does, does, or does those he... are very specific motions. Yeah, and that was a long, drawn-out fumble mm-hmm. with the briefcase in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and find out what really happened. In reality, Mark did exactly what he has shown in the film when he was first wearing the wire, giving first and last names and positions, and he stopped doing it once the FBI told him to stop it. The tape recorder in the... I'm sorry, I just... Okay, I am rooting for the character, but this guy, give me a fucking break, man. Okay, proceed, I'm sorry. What the fuck is he? Uh, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Come on, John. I mean, this is for real. This is for real. That he was really doing that with the wire. Yes. Now let's talk about the tape recorder in the briefcase, because just like in the movie, the tape recorder started clicking, and the agents were watching this on video, and, and they were horrified. Let's start. They're, they're watching all of this, and somehow no one in the room noticed. Okay, I have a theory about this. Yes, I think that Mark Whitaker's weirdness, or his perceived weirdness, his quirkiness, his mm-hmm. oddities, gave him cover for a really long time. Because there's a, also that scene, there's a scene with the tape recorder, but there's a scene in the hotel 
where the camera's blocked because it's in the lamp. Yeah. Yes. And he says, oh, you should move over here. You'll be more comfortable. And next thing you know, there's four or five men lined up on, on little bar stools, obviously uncomfortable, half standing, yeah. holding this long meeting. But they just do it and they don't mm-hmm. question it. And that may be, and that might be part of it too. The way the character is presented. I mean, I know we're talking about fact and fiction, but I'm thinking just going back to the fiction is that the way he's presented is kind of as this brilliant, bumbling, very scattered and detail, but yet detail oriented, brilliant buffoon. And mm-hmm. maybe that's how he was perceived, and that gave him oh. that cover. I mean. Oh, here's you know here's here, here's the idiosyncratic weirdo from the office, and I I think you're right about that because in the movie they show him showing off the briefcase and the tape recorder to his gardener. Yeah, and he's <laughs> and he, this guy, <laughs> yes, and he says he's double o fourteen because he's twice <laughs> yes. as smart as double o seven. That really happened, and he really said, "Oh that. my god." <laughs> Yeah, delusions of grandeur. Indeed, indeed. Is the phrase. Now, now I want to mention about the lamp real quick, because that was an interesting point in reality, and also a little thing that they brought into the film. Because according to Agent Herndon, the FBI had this green lamp. Uh, He said it was something like you would find at a yard sale, and it had a camera built into it. But this lamp would follow these executives who met all around the world. <laughs> it traveled with them? Well, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so what happens is with the FBI, they don't have jurisdiction in a foreign country. Yeah. However, they do work with law enforcement and get help from them. And they said when they were, watching, when they were doing surveillance on these meetings, every time it would be mentioned that they're going to meet in Europe – Shepard and Herndon would high-five each other because they get to go to Europe. <laughs> so, but, but there was this lamp. Apparently, they had one lamp with the camera in it, and it would appear in every conference room all over the world that these agents met in. And Whitaker has said about the lamp that he asked them, um, aren't people going to catch on to this? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and Herndon, Agent Herndon said, when people are talking about millions of dollars, they don't pay attention to what's five feet away from them. Mm-hmm. And Whitaker and Herndon have both said that they are really happy there weren't women in any of these meetings because they feel a woman would have immediately noticed the same lamp in a different country in the conference room. Because when we talk about millions of dollars, we're still paying attention to the decor. Mm-hmm. Are we so distracted by day? De- what does that mean? Uh, and, and I, you like to look at pretty things. Yes. I do like to look at pretty things. Oh my gosh. I was going to talk about millions of dollars that I was Come price fixing. Come on. That's corporate. That's corporate. Cold. That's, that's, that's for Completely. men. Yes. Well, you know, women, we, you know. we talk about tampons and douches. Yeah, I know, you know, and that's... Uh, now, a quick thing about the lamp in the movie, because there's the meeting that takes place in Irvine, which is when Mark first sees the camera in the lamp. He's, he's looking straight into it, and they're looking at the screen going, Stop it! Stop it! Stop, stop it! Stop it! Stop it. <laughs> no! <laughs> and I think one of them even says, Why didn't you tell him about the camera? <laughs> Oh, God. (laughs) And then when there's the meeting in Hawaii, you'll notice it's the same lamp. 
that's in Hawaii. So even though this was Did you notice? I, I noticed, yes. In uh, fact, I went and took a look at both scenes again. Uh-huh. It's the same lamp. I thought only women notice these things. I, I'm in touch with my feminine side. Excellent. What can I say? I like pretty things, too. <laughs> it's pretty to think so. Yes. <laughs> So, so there's an example if you Nicely know the played. if you know the truth about the lamp when you watch the movie you'll go oh that is the same lamp of course it wasn't a little green lamp but it's a beige lamp but but they added that in there now what the movie also doesn't show is that for two and a half years Whitaker would meet with the agents early in the morning to get fitted for his wire and in the evening to deliver the tapes. Now, where they put a wire on a person is right in that hollow in your collarbone. And Agent Herndon said that Mark was a really hairy guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, th- this this is made for movie. Uh, this is like yeah. this is prepackaged. Yeah. Just write the story. Yeah. <laughs> is that Mark? every detail? So Mark was a hairy guy, and they had to shave him each time when they put the wire on. Did they talk about what kind of blade they used? They, they did not. But Agent Herndon said, when you shave a guy every day for almost three years, you become pretty close. <laughs> hence, the, hey. hence the picture that comes out. <laughs> this man has a family! <laughs> what would happen to this man's family? Which is a great entry point <laughs> into talking about how the agents regarded Mark. Because what's in the movie is that they carry around a Christmas card picture in their briefcase. And the agents are showing have, shown having an affection for Mark. And seemingly getting too close to their informant. So what really happened? Well, let's start off with the official FBI term for an informant. The name for an informant is a cooperator. Or cooperating witness usually just abbreviated to CW. Now, Agent Herndon did talk to Eichenwald about the title of his book, and he said, no, we use the term uh, cooperating witness. Why did you call the book The Informant? And Eichenwald said, because no one would buy a book called The Cooperating Witness. No, boring. <laughs> the Informant sounds intriguing. Right. <laughs> this summer, brought to you by Universal. <laughs> A tale, a twisted tale of business and lying. The cooperative. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the, oh, oh, hold on. Let's do, let's do the informant version of that. I'll do the music. You do, you do the voiceover again. Go for it. No, do, do the, do the oh, voiceover. Okay. Coming this summer. A twisted tale. Of money laundering, embezzlement, and unethical business practices to a theater near you, the cooperative. Cooperating witness? Cooperating witness. I thought it was the cooperative conformant. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. That's more appropriate, I think. <laughs> That's okay. We'll cut that. We'll, we'll no, cut. no, leave it in, please. Leave it in. Okay. Leave it in. No. We'll leave it in. Agents Herndon and Shepard did develop an affection for Whitaker. Per Herndon, they kept challenging Mark's motivation. Why are you doing this? And that's seen in the movie a few times. Because this was odd. The FBI does not have someone who is an executive in a company who is pulling 300 k in salary, with stock options, is pulling seven figures, come forward to be a CW 
for the FBI. This just does not happen at all. So they were asking constantly why they're doing it. The agents did become concerned for Mark, because usually agents work with the CW for a couple of months. Shepard and Herndon worked with him for a few years. Per Herndon, they did carry a Christmas card in their briefcase because the other agents would refer to Whitaker as the source. Shepard and Herndon wanted to personalize their actions they took regarding Whitaker because they wanted to be able to make the best decisions for him. Now, you have to remember that Decatur, Illinois, where this all takes place, is a company town, and the company is ADM, which means even if Mark saw himself as wearing a white hat, the majority of the town did not see him as a good guy. They saw him as tearing down the company. Interesting. And to make matters even worse, Agent Shepard also lived in Decatur, Illinois. So he was he would hear it when he went out grocery shopping. His kids would hear it at school. They would hear it in church. They would just hear it all throughout the town. So there was some concern about making sure that Mark would be taken care of by the FBI because of the length of time he was a CW and also because of the situation in the town. You know, I I think this is one of those things if you think about the role of FBI agents in spite of someone coming forward and the idea that you would hope that they would be protected in some way because they have come forward, you would like to think that the FBI agents working with them and their higher ups are considering the human carnage that can come with whatever they do. I also recognize that sometimes human carnage is going to come out of these things and their job is to resolve whatever is in front of them, not to protect someone who has come forward. I think they should have to consider those things. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, what an accommodation to that could possibly look like because we all know whistleblowers aren't going to be able to work in their industry when it's something large we see how that works out time and time again it just feels like a lot to think about it seems like a from the description that it was so odd and they kept asking him why 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 it seems like eventually it seems like initially actually it would just be a massive red flag Mm -hmm. seems like a like a miss is that because they cared about him? That's yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Is did the personal element take over so much that their affection for him gave them a blind spot? Well, it could also be because of the information he was providing them as well. Because they wouldn't have this information without him. And you really did not hear about price fixing schemes like this taking place with corporations very frequently. The frequency of us hearing about these things really ramped up after this took place. Oh, interesting. In fact, just a couple of years ago, uh, Bumblebee Tuna was popped in a price-fixing scheme regarding tuna. So these things are still coming tuna, out. Tuna fish? Tuna fish, yeah. Canned tuna fish. Canned tuna fish. All right. right. Hey, five cents here, five cents there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. In the movie, there's a great scene that takes place in a Chinese restaurant. And this is where the agents come <laughs> in and Mark is posing hypotheticals to them and the agents come in and they're less friendly than they usually are to mark and that's never explained in the film but this is going to be one of those things that's interesting to find out what informed that because they also have a reaction to mark 
when he starts asking hypotheticals about personal use of a company car, personal use of a corporate jet, where they're acting almost relieved. They're laughing in a way that they're relieved that that's all he's bringing to them until he tells them that he embezzled $500,000. And then that's when everything changes for them. Now, what happened in real life and what's not shown in the film is on the same morning of that meeting, which, by the way, they really did meet in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, That is true. But Whitaker and Shepard were told that they would need to go to D.C. as soon as possible. ADM had discovered Whitaker's forged documents and were using their political muscle to get Attorney General Janet Reno to indict them. An anonymous note had been received by the ADM attorneys that claimed Shepard and Herndon had taken money from ADM. Now, this is mentioned in the film, but not to this degree. And it also doesn't end up mentioning the Chicago FBI office, because the important thing to note here is that there has always been a turf war between the Springfield FBI office and the Chicago FBI office. Now, the Springfield FBI office was handling the ADM case. (laughs) That's just so funny to me. A what turf is? war between FBI officers. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're going to get jackets made. Uh, okay. So the Springfield... <laughs> you okay there? It's... You sure? Yes. Okay. The Springfield office was handling the ADM price-fixing case, while the Chicago FBI office was handling the embezzlement case against Whitaker. Now, the Chicago office felt that the Springfield office should have known what their CW was doing. In the movie, it's not mentioned about the other office. It's just left at, they feel you should have known. Mm -hmm. But what we're talking about are two different FBI offices here handling different cases that are connected. The fraud office, out of an abundance of caution, requested that Shepard and Herndon be removed from the case and not to have any contact with Whitaker. Now, we do see what takes place after this. Whitaker goes to Forbes magazine. Whitaker goes to the Wall Street Journal. But it's really not explained. It's just kind of presented as quirky. The agents were concerned because Whitaker was cut off from the lifeline he had had for two and a half years. The two people who he knows who can guide him now are not allowed to have any contact with him. And what with that's unsettling, yep, especially when you have undiagnosed and untreated bipolar bipolar taking place without his lifeline. Whitaker went to Fortune magazine and the Wall Street Journal, where he detailed his work as a CW for the FBI and made allegations against Shepard and Herndon. Whitaker also attempted suicide twice and was once Mm -hmm. found unconscious in his car with the engine running. He also faked his own kidnapping, which is shown in the film, and Mm -hmm. told the story on live television. As Herndon and Shepard kept in touch with each other, they were watching their informant spiral out of control. They were also watching the ADM price-fixing case slip away and were worried that ADM was going to get away with it. Herndon and his supervisor requested an audience with FBI Director Louis Free, who already knew Herndon and Shepard from a previous visit to the Springfield office during the case. After meeting with Herndon, Free then walked across the street to the Department of Justice, 
and had Herndon and Shepard put back on the case. In the movie, this is what has taken place in order for Herndon and Shepard to have the visit with Mark and Ginger in their living room to inform them that they can't be in contact anymore. The scene at the end where Agent Herndon visits Whitaker in prison did not happen, but Herndon did write a letter in favor of Whitaker's pardon. And here's how that came about. There was a separate FBI case that Herndon was working on, and the defense attorneys had found out that Whitaker had filed a lawsuit for assault against Agent Shepard and Agent Herndon. This is where the briefcase comes into play. I was going to ask. <laughs> this is the briefcase. They visited Whitaker in prison to get him to testify against Herndon. A field supervisor who was familiar with the case told Herndon that Whitaker said that agents Herndon and Shepard are two of the most honest men he has ever known, and if they put him on the stand, he will speak favorably about them. When Herndon heard about this, he reached out to Whitaker in prison to see how he was holding up. They were able to develop a relationship again, and Whitaker agreed to write a letter of support for Whitaker's pardon, which is highly unusual for an active FBI agent to do. Agent Shepard also wrote a letter to support Whitaker's pardon as well, as their director of the investigation. The reason why they supported a pardon for Whitaker is that he received consecutive sentences. That's what made up his 10 years for being part of the price fixing and the embezzlement. Ordinarily, informants would receive concurrent sentences for anything they were found guilty of prior to working with the FBI. It just seems so odd that he would, that Herndon would reestablish a relationship with Whitaker. Um, I don't know if that's allowed or not, or if it's considered untoward or. Well, remember, you have this guy you've been shaving for almost three years. Yes, but I'm wondering what the expectations are by the agency Mm -hmm. or of the agency for its employees. Who are working with informants. Well, Whitaker's no longer an informant. He's a prisoner now. <laughs> At this time, he's in prison. He's serving his sentence. So there's nothing active taking place with the agent and Whitaker. But as you point out, they reestablished a relationship, which means it was mm-hmm. a relationship before. And again, I think that goes back to what I was talking about before, which is it's important for them to see the humans... Mm-hmm that they're working with to understand the human carnage that they may unleash. But at the same time, this goes back to what John was talking about, which is it gives them blind spots or dilutes their ability to look at what would be considered red flags. Yeah. But by this time, everything was over and done with. They had no further active business with Whitaker at all. He was serving his time. And what's interesting is if it were not for uh, those defense attorneys coming forward trying to get Whitaker to testify against Herndon, that relationship wouldn't have been established because there is very there, there isn't anything I could find out there of Agent Shepard talking about this case. Mm-hmm. And when it's said in the movie, the response from Joel McHale is that he's still pretty sore. I could see that. But Agent Shepard did not have this experience where Whitaker uh, said. You know, I'm not going to do that to him and that they're honest people. Agent Shepard didn't have that 
So he really didn't have an opening for establishing, for reestablishing a relationship, but still wrote a letter of pardon for Whitaker. Which seems like the more appropriate dynamic. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm torn. I'm I'm torn on this one. I yeah. still just the, the character. I'm I'm just I'm dividing between the character and the and the real story. And I'm having a problem reconciling my vision of the character and my understanding of the man. Mm-hmm. I love the character. Yeah. And the more we talk about this, the more I hate this motherfucker. Really? Why? Because there's nothing different that he did than what's shown in the movie. So what's the difference? Well, first of all, in his real life, you don't have a jaunty soundtrack playing to boost you up when you're when you're watching his. We don't know. He might have. Well, he might have, but yes. we don't. I'm t- I'm saying, from my perspective, and this is obviously going to be a bias of mine, but I have a really hard time feeling sorry for corporate executives in any context, because I think that in order to get to that spot, you have to be, in some sense, and not this is not exclusive, but you have to be a monster. You have to be able to ascend to that level of power and accumulation of wealth. You have to plot and strategize and see people as pawns in a scheme. And you, with the movie, I can have that distance. With the film, I can have the distance that this is a character I'm watching that's been created and it's enjoyable. But the more we talk about the real story, mm-hmm. it's just loathing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, because what's happening here is really serious stuff. Absolutely. Price fixing and embezzlement. Absolutely. But it goes again, it goes to that thing where it's it's not such a it's not a crime that people are going to react to viscerally because Mm -hmm. it's so unnatural. Right. It's a human construct. Like the economy is a human construct. Like All of these things are constructs. Mm -hmm. It's not a natural human reaction to go. Price fixing? Well, God, let's raise up the pitchforks and yeah, I mean all of that kind of yeah. stuff. But it is a natural human reaction to you know you stab someone or you hurt someone or you harm someone, then you then you it's a biological imperative to fight back. The more we talk about it, the less interested I am in the guy, and yeah. the more I think that this this story needs to be told. But the man involved, Whitaker, is just. Utterly insignificant. Don? I agree. It's hard for me to care about millionaires stealing money from billionaires. Yeah. I, I don't feel bad for them. Whitaker and the other executives scheming money off the top at ADM embezzling money. I don't feel bad for okay. ADM. I don't feel bad for their stockholders. I don't feel bad for the executives. At the same time, white collar crimes, as we've talked about, are... They're abstract. They're not tangible. And it's it's difficult to sit down and see the impact unless you really dig deep. What it does to the large wholesale market, what it does to the retail market, what it does to the financial markets, all these different things that I don't claim to understand. Mm-hmm. But there are all these machinations going on. And in the end, the person that it hurts is the average person who doesn't make millions of dollars, let alone billions. And that shit infuriates me. And if- that fucking chaps my hide. And they survive 
and continue to be able to do this because it is so fucking abstract and it's so hard to, to get your head around and not to diminish crime that we can see that's tangible that happens to a human but this hurts millions of people and it's just mm-hmm. starting to be talked about mm-hmm. in the current environment about what this really looks like the movie's fabulous but oh geez i, I don't want to know any more about this guy i'm, I'm I, I i am better off with this piece of information <laughs> floating mm-hmm. from my head and never mm-hmm. to return but now I'm going back through the whole movie and I'm finding all his quirks annoying. And I'm finding his quirks. <laughs> just shut up. Just stop talking about that. Yeah. So then, since we've seen the movie before, closer to when it was originally released, and now is some of that our own cultural lens? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. The more we've learned, the way we look at things mm-hmm. has changed significantly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if I were to ask you for a letter grade for truthfulness and presenting the facts, what letter grade would you give it, Don? A through F. Well, well if, if we are to believe the people who are the movie portrays mm-hmm. and their assertion that all of this is correct. Which there's no reason not to. I mean... Then I give it a B plus, A minus, A minus. I give it an A minus. Give me a solid letter. A minus. So an A? A minus. Don't do minus and plus. I do. Okay. This isn't your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) A through F, solid letters only, no pluses or minuses. What do you give it? I give it an A. What do you give it? I was going to give it an A minus for one reason. Okay. Simply because he did not do the visit. Uh, the agent did not do the visit to prison. Really? Why is that the determining factor for you? Because it was such a... It's the con- conclusion of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Everything hinges on that. You're, just, you're waiting for this moment, and uh-huh. it's not true. So, But I would say the rest of it, yeah, it, I would say an A with reservations. Okay, A with reservations. Great. No, man, talking about the facts of this thing... Uh-huh. I I don't I don't think I want to watch the movie again. Why? What? Really? Yeah. You know when it's that thing with uh you learn something about um this rarely happens with me, but like with celebrities you learn some kind of peccadillo or idiosyncrasy or fucked up shit that they have in their lives uh-huh. and then you can no longer just you, you, the association is it's it's just stuck with you, with their music and their mm-hmm. their films. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of that thing. But this guy, what he has going even less for him, yeah, is that he actually didn't do anything great with his life. And so, like, wh- where you take a singer or an actor who's pursued a passion, this guy devo- d- devoted his life to making money. Yeah, he's now CEO of a COO of another I, company. So, yeah. what the fuck do I want to watch a movie about this so, guy again? Yeah. We reward yeah. in the end. Greed. Well, to what level did his bipolar play into it as well? I don't know. Because I think that's a factor. Although, okay, so to play devil's advocate against my own argument that I just made or statement that I just made, someone serves their time in our nation mm-hmm. and they're, that that is it. They have paid their debt. Th- this is all theoretical. 
as far as I'm concerned. We know that's not how it rolls out. We know people all the time, they can't get a job anymore. They cannot get credit. They cannot get an apartment. They cannot get a car. Maybe they can't see their own kids. This guy gets out of prison and is now a COO of another corporation. Yes. So what's our justice system's role in this? Well, I mean, this is, this is the fraternity. This, yeah. is, this is the club that moves on from the frat house to the corporation and then up into the upper echelons, and it's, it's, it's a good old boys club. Kavanaugh. Oh! No. And Squee. Don't and forget, Squee. Don't forget Squee. Don't forget Squee. <laughs> oh, my God! And Matt Damon played him on SNL. Ah! We've come full yes! circle! I didn't even do it on purpose. <laughs> Rock on! And the dismount. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this, Don. All right. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere except Spreaker. We don't do Spreaker. You can find all of the sources that we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash the informant. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. And for the informant, I have a half-hour interview with Mark Whitaker. It is interesting to watch how he describes the events that took place in the movie. I want to thank John and Don for talking about The Informant. You can find John Helix on Facebook. Handle again is at John Helix Official. And you can find John Helix's music in most places where you go to get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle of at Mostly Suck. Or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.